Imran, thanks a lot for coming on the Judgment Call podcast. I really appreciate that. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we love to have you on. And we know your specialty is option trading. And we also know you've been all over Wall Street, different banks, um, Credit Suisse, um, Citibank um, over the years. And you've been doing this for a long time. And I was, cur- <clears throat> I was curious, hey, what attracted you to the financial industry in the first place? And then why did you leave Wall Street at some point? Okay, so um, in terms of what attracted me to Wall Street, I guess you know, I, I did mathematics and economics at university. Um, I was the son of an accountant, so my dad was in finance. Both my brothers were kind of in finance as well. And so because I was always pretty decent at maths and, and had those quantitative skills, it was like, what, what career can I go into and utilize the skills that I have? And, you know, uh, going to London School of Economics set me up to be able to, you know, be attracted uh, by those big banks on Wall Street where, you know, as a 20, 30 year old, you can you can make good money and, you know, you can get some decent security and live a good life. Right. That was the kind of goal when I originally started. Yeah, it sounds like a good plan. It sounds like and that seems kind of rare that it seems like a very conscious decision. Like you wanted that, the light bulb went on when you were 18 and then you just executed the plan. Yeah, well, you know, I was brought up to be very motivated to to get myself secure and comfortable in life, right? So, you know, my my dad struggled, you know, he moved here um, when he was 20 years old. He he struggled through various jobs that he would, he was quite skilled, like in terms of knowledge and stuff, but he had to do jobs that were kind of, you know, maybe a little bit basic for him. And he didn't want us to go through the same strife, right? So he he kind of taught us that, you know, work hard at school, get the skills, get a good job and make set yourself up basically, right? So it's very Asian, very Asian mentality. Um, yeah. but but it kind of worked, right? It was it was certainly worked on a materialistic level, like uh, allowing me to earn enough money to get myself comfortable. Yeah. Why did you end up, and I know you changed positions for different banks over the years, but I know you took a break a couple of years ago and then you left Wall Street. Why was that? So actually, you know, a lot of that initially was driven by my wife. So uh, she she was really keen on traveling before we had kids. So we were married for about, you know, seven years. Um, we weren't in a rush to have kids, but we were like, you know, if we're going to have kids, she she really really wanted to see the world a bit and, and travel um and because my career was going pretty well you know i hadn't really taken the plunge until then and and it just came to a nice point in my career where i, I was feeling pretty burnt out i've been doing it for about 10 years uh, and she really wanted to travel before we had kids so i was like you know what i'm going to put my hand up um take voluntary redundancy and, and let's use the money i get to travel the world so uh, that's what we did so before we had kids yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it sounds a bit like Jim Rogers, right? He he took his money. He went on this two uh, two year long trip. You know, I think he did two trips around the world. Both of them were around two years old, and mm-hmm. then um, he ran his own shop um, after that, right? So he he joined uh, the ranks of the legendary investors who run their own shop, become an independent publisher, publish a newsletter. We know this is something that um, is as a business model really really popular right now. Being stack exchange, is it something that you? Where you felt like, well, I can either make more money, or this is just fits my lifestyle better. How did you, how did you transition this way out, out of Wall Street at that point? 
Well, my my actual transition out of Wall Street happened later. So when I came back from traveling, I wasn't desperate to go back to banking. Um, I was I was kind of fishing around to see if there were any hedge fund opportunities. Didn't manage to find any, and then ended up joining an old boss of mine at Citibank, and actually got back to banking, which was slightly annoying because I was kind of enjoying not being in it. Um, but it was only later, after I had kind of um, you know, had my little go on the buy side, you know, satisfied that sort of uh, itch, scratched that itch, as it were. Um, and then I, it was only then that I was like, okay, now it's time to maybe try something else. Um, and that was the teaching, because I'd always quite enjoyed the idea of teaching. And I'd always, in, you know, throughout my career at the banks, I'd always trained people that came through. And, and that was something that I really liked to do. Um, and I found that I was quite effective at it. So then I was like, okay, so I've got a bunch of knowledge on a, on a subject that's quite niche, and I've got a low, I've got a big network of contacts that I can probably, you know, turn into clients, you know, ex colleagues or whatever that I might have. Um, so why not give it a go? So that was the night when I created Options Insight. And Options Insight, help us to understand that a little better. It's really about trading options in the market, what's available to the retail investor. Or does it go in a different direction? No, well, when, when I first started Options Insight, it was about how, how do I leverage my network, right? So I've got a bunch of old colleagues at banks. Some of them are asset managers who are old clients of mine. I've got some brokers who I used to be their clients. So all these people who have either probably have staff junior staff who need proper training and probably don't get proper training right so it was actually at the start it was more of an institutional product and an institutional offering that i was giving because that, that was the contacts that i already had right and no one no one in the public sphere no one in retail knew me right so so it was very much the first couple of years just leveraging those contacts building up my content building up my sort of product suite and it was only post covid really that i realized that you know, the people who really need the education and are still out there looking for it and are more consistently always going to be there are the retail traders, right? And and as, as the growth in re retail trading exploded in the last couple of years, particularly in options, and I was seeing some really basic sort of errors or mistakes that I, that I think, you know, novice option traders kind of make. I was like, these are the people that I need to try and educate, right? So then it was a case of try to build that sort of profile that I'm not just for institutions, even though I've been on Wall Street for 20 years, and those are the people who I know and know me, I'm happy to teach the retail people because, you know, it doesn't have to be only professionals. You can you can teach this knowledge to anyone, right? So that, that was the goal and that was the idea. Yeah, I feel like they should make your, your initial course mandatory on Robinhood. I was, I, was, yeah. Yeah. I was really surprised, you know, I, I had a portfolio for, well, I don't know, 25 years. Um, first E-Trade, you know, that was the first online broker a long time ago. Anyways, so when I started um, with um, Robinhood um, about two years ago, 18 months ago, I was really surprised that the approval to for option trading used to be a pain. Like it was possible, but you needed to file some documents, you needed to fax something, you needed to validate your ID. And I think... That's all true with Robinhood too, but I feel like I was instantly approved for options trading, and I couldn't believe it. I could suddenly, I could, I could sell calls, I could buy yeah, puts. That's... It was amazing. But from, and I think I know what I'm doing. Well, we all think that, right? <laughs> but I do have 20 years of experience with the subject, not in detail. 
Mm -hmm. But I was really surprised that Robinhood really opened up options trading to the masses. And I had this suspicion, that might be just me, that most people have no idea what these option actually, options actually do, right? But why are they so different? Why are they different than an equity that I'm investing in? What is all this game about? How, why would they decay? That seems to be not really open to the retail investor, at least from what I see in the Robinhood app. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a no-brainer. I mean, I actually the regulators should make it compulsory for platforms that offer the use of leverage products like options to make sure that those those people using that platform have got a minimum level of education because you're totally right you know people can lose all their money in a week with some of the crazy things that they're doing like buying one week call options on a on a crazy hot meme stock i mean it's it's insane yeah so yeah i to totally agree i I, it, I mean i think that's the problem like people just you know, get into fads and trends, right? And and the fad and the trend was, okay, what's the next hot stock like Tesla or whatever that's going to explode? And, and how can I turn a small amount of money into a large amount of money? And, you know, on these on these Reddit forums, they all got excited and they all started doing the same trades and, and, and it became self-fulfilling, I guess, to an extent. But yeah, I would love yeah. to be able to... And it's not, it's not because I want to necessarily, you know, capitalize on this, right? But I just don't like the idea that these a large part of a large percentage of these people at some point are going to lose all their cash, right? And if there was a way of preventing that, that would be a good thing, right? Because I don't, the idea of all these retail traders losing the ten or twenty grand that they have to play with is is not a nice thought, really, right? You know, banks can afford to take it on the chin and lose a few billion here and there because they'll always get bailed out by the government, right? But the retail guy won't, so. Yeah, I found it quite mesmerizing when, they, when the, the data that I've seen about Robinhood traders, they're extremely young, they're most likely male, and they bet a relatively small amount of money, between $500 and $1,000. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit, you know, we, we, I've been talking on the podcast a lot about the dearth of opportunities. This generation probably has the highest overhang from the previous generation in debt, in, 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 in mainstream thinking that it's hard for them to to break out and use new opportunities yes you can drive for uber but it's not gonna not gonna change your life right do you know there's a level there's like a glass ceiling so to speak as an uber driver and it makes mm. cash and i think from that point of view i actually feel it's kind of smart what they do they take this bet that most likely won't go anywhere but if it pays off you going to have a few hundred thousand in your portfolio just two days later what well, worst case scenario and, and most likely scenario your money is gone yeah. And mm -hmm. this this virtual casino, what the odds are certainly probably better than going to Vegas to get if you're thinking about two hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars that you wanna 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 bring back. I think this is actually a pretty. I almost want to say it's a smart way to make money. I know how crazy it is, right? But mm. if if you don't have enough opportunities to get to these levels, because most people, you know, under thirty, they can never buy a house in San Francisco. I don't I don't I don't know if it's ever going to change. I guess, you know, another way to think about it is they're all buying a lottery ticket, but you can have multiple winners and they can share share the payout, basically, right? And the, and the, more, yeah. the more people they get to buy the lottery ticket, the more likely they are to all get paid out, right? So, <laughs> Indeed, so yes. that's kind of the game that they're playing, which, like I say, it's fine and, and it's great when it works. And, you know, I wrote an article. One of one of the things that I do occasionally is, is write articles about the market and just just to sort of put my thoughts down on paper and, and they go on my blog on my website. And I wrote an article about the retail army because I was loving what was going on with the retail army and how they were, you know, sticking it to the 
to the hedge funds and stuff and, and creating short squeezes and stuff like that. And it's great, but it's great while it works. But then when you, when you get these problems like, oh, you know, your account just got, your account got frozen because we've got margin issues on our side and now you can't do anything. You know, had they had the foresight or the knowledge to be able to maybe do some smarter trade implementation, right? Then maybe they could protect themselves against that tail risk. I don't know, right? I don't know for sure. I mean, trade, yeah. even if you know how to trade options well, it doesn't mean you're always going to call the market correctly, but it's just, you know, the trade, for example, the trade that I was doing when the GameStop stuff was happening was quite funny. It was um, in one of the other stocks, BlackBerry. And BlackBerry was kind of following the AMC and the GameStop price action. It was one of the meme stocks as well. And it, it was, I think it was at like $26, $27, something like that. And, uh, and I was like, you know, this thing might just keep going. It might do a GameStop, right? So, but the vol is absolutely on the moon. Like the vol was in the hundreds, okay? Yeah. So I sold, I think the stock was at 26, 27. I sold the 15, 10, put spread the $15 $10 put spread and I collected two and a half dollars for that thing and it was expiring in like two or three weeks okay so it was miles out of the money and I was collecting half the premium of the most it could ever be worth okay and that was happening in two weeks it was going to expire right so I was like rather than trying to buy this stock and take the risk that it drops in my face that's the best expression of being long this stock right and as it happened I was completely wrong the stock dumped 40% over the next week and I lost no money, right? So if I just bought the stock, I would have lost 40%. But because of the pricing of that put spread and understanding how the optionality works and, and where the opportunity lies, I was able to sell that put spread and take a zero hit on a 40% drop in the stock. And then I just cut my position and it was fine, right? So, so that's, what I, that's what I want to learn. That's what I like to be able to empower people to learn how to kind of, swing the odds in their favor a little bit right yeah i love that um you know what what i what i was my experience with options it's the market is incredibly illiquid it's very difficult often to get a good price for that option um depending even on relatively well-known stocks i think i had some uber calls and i felt like i, I don't know what the strike price was but there were like five of them traded the whole day i'm like holy smokes i mean this is not exactly a small stock right mm. and um there's always something going on where I feel like the market maker, someone on the other side, has way more insight than I have. That's probably true in, in all of Wall Street, but I feel with options, I feel like especially that's, I don't know actually what's going on behind this. <coughs> so maybe you can help us a little bit what, when you just illuminated one of those, those strategies. What are strategies where you feel like you still have an edge out there, even though Wall Street is basically against you and these computers are super smart? Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about liquidity, I mean, I think that's a bit of a special case on the Uber side. Like, you know, big, large, relatively large cap names, options markets are quite liquid if you know what the expiries are that trade, right? So the, the problem I think you had there was most likely you were picking some obscure expiry that was like a weekly expiry rather than one of the monthly expiries where that's where most of the trading volume is. So you'll get better pricing on that. So you kind of need to know what is the stuff that, trades liquidly like even on something like the vix for example right the vix index you can trade options on the vix but the monthly expiries are super liquid whereas the weekly expiries are horrible and that's on something as deep and as liquid as the vix right so you kind of need to know what you should be which instruments provide you the liquidity 
right? Yes. Um, in terms of where the edge is, the edge is in, in understanding how to implement a trade, right? So you're right, on, on, on trade execution, you are probably gonna give some edge away, right? But, so if you're like trying to trade it on a super short-term horizon and day trade it, then the odds are not in your favor, right? But the odds, the way to swing the odds in your favor are to have slightly longer time horizons, right? And know that the structure or the strategy that you're, that you're using is, is optimal for the market conditions and for your view, basically, right? And, 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 you sh and you should also be careful to not constantly buy options all the time across everything, right? Because systematically paying premium is generally a losing game. So you want to try and be a bit more selective about how much premium you burn and when you burn it, basically, right? That's that's kind of how I, that's my general sort of feeling on, on that stuff. Yeah, I read the <coughs> the original post um, of the GameStop saga, and I think it appeared in early November, um, second week of November. And basically the idea that was given in that original post was, why don't we buy really long dated call options? And the same thing happened for, for Tesla. So this was this was like the, the go-to strategy for people on Reddit to buy long dated three month um, as long as they could find it on Robinhood basically and I think they don't go okay. so far out that's a big mm -hmm. problem you can't buy a two year option uh, even if that exists for professional traders it doesn't really show up on Robinhood mm -hmm. and what I found interesting they bought this three month um, or two and a half month option it was as long as it was available. And the stock barely moved during that time. And the second it expired, two days later, it started to explode and went like 5,000% higher. So it was a little yeah, bit yeah. from the original post view. If you don't roll over your options, you would have given up all the upside. Do you held mm -hmm. that position basically till the end? It only mm -hmm. moved, I don't know, 20% until then. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you look into to, to option strategies, what is kind of the, you just said that short term, it's a problem. What is a typical investment horizon? Is it two months? Is it one week? Or where do you come Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, generally, I prefer to err on the side of buying a bit of extra time, right? So, so I might have a view on, a, on an underlying, but I'm not arrogant enough to think that my timing is going to be perfect. Maybe it's, it, maybe it's just because I've been doing it for 20 years, so I know how often I'm wrong, yeah? Um, so the idea then is to say, okay, well, how much does it really cost me to give myself an extra month for this this view to play out, right? So rather than buying a July option right now, maybe I should go to August or September, yeah? So always err on the side of buying a bit of extra time for your view to play out is kind of my default. And then it's like, how much am I having to really pay extra in terms of volatility premium to push myself further out the curve, basically, right? So, so that that's kind of, and then, so that's one thing, that's my general sort of default in terms of if I'm expressing directional views using options. And then like you said, rolling is very important, right? So if if it turns out that my thesis isn't playing out as quick as I thought, or so I can change my mind, right? And then just say, okay, can I salvage back some premium because my view's changed? If my view hasn't changed and I still like the scenario that that stock or that underlying is going to go in the direction that I think, but it's not playing out and I'm getting within a month of expiry of my trade, then I think, how can I make that premium that's left? How can I make that live for longer? So where could I roll that premium to? What strike and watch maturity to just keep that premium alive for a bit longer, right? Because you just don't want it to get to the point where it's very digital, where it's very binary, whereas you get one bad week in the stock and now your option's definitely dead. 
basically, right? You want to, and, and that tends to happen when you let the option get too close to expiry. So, so the, the people who, who play it from the professional side and the more statistical side will always want their long premium to be sitting in um, maybe a one to three month expiry. And when it gets too short dated and it starts to get too binary and the theta and the, the, the theta bleed basically gets too heavy, then you push it out to a longer expiry to make it live for longer. Right? That's kind of yeah. how, how I think about you it. You would have to sell that option and just buy a new one, right? Correct. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. exactly. When, when uh, you look at the markets right now, there seems to be a lot of trend following going on, right? So it seems there is, and that's kind of my greens topic a little bit, there's too few people who buy on value, who buy on their conviction, right? So we always have those, um, those contrarians, right? So they buy things and they're ready to hold it forever, some Warren Buffett. You know, as long as it's my return on equity is the same as what I projected, I'm good. It doesn't matter what the stock price is ever because mm -hmm. uh, it will eventually be realized. But there seems to be, what, when we look at the markets right now, there seems to be a ton of trend following, right? It's, nobody actually is able to go out there anymore and say, well, this is a mania, crypto is crazy. But crypto, I mean, it just came down a little, but usually it would just double the next day, just because, because someone said, oh, we are in, we are in, in a bubble. When you, is that for you an investment criteria? You feel like, well, I'm, I'm, this is too, too big. I'm looking at, at more specific um, trading opportunities. So, so I, I would say trend following is definitely a valid strategy. Um, you know, think about CTAs and why they exist, right? Back, go back to the, the turtle traders, right? And the, the birth of the CTAs, you know, that was trend following. Um, and that worked, right? And they managed to teach people who knew nothing about trading and make them profitable traders by following a very simple trend following strategy. So clearly it, it used to work and there was value in it. Now, whether or not there's as much value in it now or it's as consistently profitable is debatable. Um, I would argue there is still value in it just because why, you know, when you're a momentum or a trend follower, what, what I think you're basically getting rewarded for is patience. So you, you, will, you will basically find a trend, right? You will establish a trend that is established and you will say, you know, this is why I think that trend is is going to continue and I'm willing to just be in that trend and stay with it basically. Right. And if you have the ability to size your risk and be patient enough with that position, that's kind of your edge, right? That you're not getting puffed out of the position on the first sign of a drawdown basically. Right. So I think momentum seeking does get rewarded because it's some, but, but it depends on the time horizon, right? You need to probably look for, so the way I think about momentum is, find longer term trends that you that you expect can persist for years maybe right yeah. and have some sort of way to size into those trends and follow those trends and some indicators maybe that you use to identify those trends right but then around that what a nice overlay strategy on top of that is to look for mean reversion in the shorter term time horizons right because that's a valid strategy as well right you know things can get frothy and things can get overstretched away from their mean simple things like bollinger bands allow you to sort of see that in terms of charting so you know but then you look at daily time frequencies or even you know four hourlies or whatever and they will give you a different sort of outlook about your short-term tactical positioning that will sometimes kind of neutralize your longer term trend holdings 
But then once those things mean revert back to their averages, then you're happy to unwind your tactical mean reversion bets and get back to the trend following position. Right? So I think they work hand in hand as, as, as complementary strategies, basically, but just across different time horizons. Okay. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to parse it. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm obviously not from the industry. Mm. One thing that, that I think a lot which is a big struggle right now, is basically all the trades are heavily impacted by either deflationary or inflationary scenario. Whatever you do right now, you have to have a position, more or less. You can basically, it's very difficult, I feel, to find anything right now that's completely neutral and not affected if either of the scenario comes true. So you've got to have a view of the future. Will it be inflationary and strongly inflationary? It seems to be this very bifurcated right now. Or will this continuous technology deflation keep going china is very deflationary it's just the bigger trend which isn't this little trend that basically is a blip over the years um and mm -hmm. we've seen deflation or deflationary scenario for a long time um mm -hmm. where do you stand on this yeah i mean you know i i sympathize with both sides of the argument but i you know and I, i've been sort of you know talking about this in my on my youtube channel recently right so did one video a couple of weeks back, which was talking about how inflation looks like it might overshoot in the short term. And these are the reasons. And then literally the week after I was spelling out the case for the case against inflation. Right. And, yeah. and, and you know, I think David Rosenberg in his latest um, sort of piece and he was on he was on like uh, podcasts recently and he was spelling out the, the why he doesn't believe in, in inflation longer term. And he thinks it will be transitory and he actually agrees with the Fed. It's hard to argue against what you're saying, right? I mean, the structural forces are strong. And, you know, the, these, these sort of inflationary dynamics are because of factors that clearly are temporary, right? So I, you've got to assume these stimulus checks are not just going to keep coming forever, right? I mean, maybe they will, but your default base case needs to be at some point they're going to expire, right? Because you're seeing the disincentives for people to work in the non-farms numbers, and we've got another one coming this Friday, right? And if that's a bad number, it's going to be not because there's not demand for jobs, not because we don't want people to work. The job vacancies are sky high, but no one wants to go and work because they're getting paid free money from the government. So you, you are starting to see states in the US, you know, stop the unemployment benefits in an in attempt to force people back to work. And hopefully you'll see that come through in the jobs numbers over the summer. So June, July, August. Um, so that, I think that needs to happen. Uh, and that will address some of the kind of potential wage inflation that maybe we might start to see. Um, and then, you know, people talking about... But Europe, supply... Europe is not affected by this, right? So Europe seems... We, 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 we have this scenario for the US, but, but you're in Europe. Um, I'm currently too. Um, it seems Europe has, has always had great generous benefits right if you if unemployment benefits i remember that when i lived in germany where large stretches of the population were all on unemployment benefits nobody had worked in 20 years and that was not that was not that was pretty normal it was still in a decent neighborhood right it wasn't a neighborhood where you get shot at night mm -hmm. and it's somehow i mean europe doesn't have any inflation right so it, it, it keeps giving people checks for 20 years but inflation hasn't really shown up in the longest time in europe if anything, it's negative, not right. Yeah, that's that's true. And I mean, the structural, I suppose the structural deflationary forces, you know, that spring to mind, right, are obviously technology, the big one, right? Demographics, 
is another one. So what, what does the demographic profile of Europe look like versus maybe places where we are seeing more inflation? Um, that's probably a factor. Um, and, those, and those structural demographic forces aren't going away, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I think longer term, I kind of agree that we're not going to get some massive runaway inflation that's going to that's going to force yields higher and, and and it's the end of it right it's the end of bond markets basically um yeah. but but i think in the short term we might get an overshoot right in the short term we could get an overshoot um i don't think it will be enough to force the fed to act um and so i think the interesting thing is what what a commodity market's going to do Right. So, so the way I've been playing and using, I've been using commodity markets as a bit of an inflation hedge. Right. Yeah. Um, I think everybody's okay. onto this trade. That's what yeah. commodities have done so well. You know, energy stocks and commodities obviously are kind of somewhat in sync and uh, they've been doing pretty decently. Um, there's also yeah. the whole electric car thing um, going on in the background with precious metals. But I, yeah. sometimes I'm not sure it's just because all the traders think this is a good hedge or maybe because yeah. it is a good hedge. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I mean, it's a valid point, right? Because at some point it's fully priced or, you know, too much money's in it and, and it requires an unwind. Or, you know, these are the whole trading game theory and psychology aspects you need to be aware of, right? You know, is the money in commodities, is it fast money? Is it fickle, weak hands that are going to dump it at the first sign of trouble? Or is it a structural mega trend that's going to keep going for a long, long time? Now, arguably, because of the governmental sort of agenda towards clean energy and electrification and all that stuff, you, you'd have to think, well, it's certainly easy to construct the argument that the demand for copper is going nowhere, right? And then not only have you got a strong demand story because we need to have a shitload of copper to, you know, to, to do what we need to do for the electrification of the world, right? Um, so demand side's there. And then you look at the supply side and you see there hasn't been enough capex there's a supply shortage. It's going to take a while for that supply shortage to be addressed. So you can see copper, the copper mega trend being there, but then maybe some other commodities are getting a bit, uh, you know, far ahead of themselves, like the agricultural commodities, like corn and and wheat and things that have started correcting a little bit recently. You know, what if there is some bumper harvest in the US, right? This this time round, all of a sudden that supply shortage goes away and those those things get sold another 30% quickly, right? Who knows, right? So so I think you've got to be careful about what you own in commodities and make sure that you're comfortable with the un underlying fundamental trends that are there. But then they also offer you a general kind of inflation hedge and a real asset type thing in your portfolio, right? Because having too many bonds in your portfolio right now against your equity exposure doesn't feel that sensible. And that, that goes back to your recent podcast with Harley, right? Talking about the correlation between bonds and equities going higher if rates go higher. Yeah. You know, then bonds aren't offering you any diversification. So how do I get that diversification in my portfolio? And I think some move towards real assets and commodities that have got a real demand, a real supply demand story going on that isn't about to disappear. Maybe that's the pivot that people are making in their portfolios away from bonds and into real assets, right? Yeah, sometimes I feel like the demand from bond is kind of came in by default because remember for the last 40, 50 years, people had been pitched 
the simple investment approach put 60% in equities, 40% in bonds. And more people got on the train to invest, right? So either that's demographic or this is just because we are richer. Whatever it is, there seems to be a surplus of savings. And we haven't put them in government saving um, savings as, as the, you would have to do in China, right? So what we did, we followed the 60-40 model. I, I did it I, quite some time ago. And I felt really confident with this because it gives you some it gives you some stability. Like think back to two thousand eight, the bonds were doing well relatively mm-hmm. well compared to your equity portfolio that didn't do so well at least initially. Yeah. So I there is there is a lot of science to it, but I feel like that's what I'm trying to say. People are buying these bonds not because they want to buy bonds, no, just because it's basically inherent into the strategy. It's kind of what Mike Green is saying with the passive investors. They don't want to actually buy this stock. They just buy it because it's in that index and because it's in this index and you buy into that mutual fund or this index tracking fund that they're being bought. So it's a mm-hmm. default investment because I cannot come up with any scenario where a rational investor buys a 0.2% bond with a perceived inflation of 2% that we always had, right? You can argue is it more like one point? Five or is it three point five? But it's somewhere we always had two percent more or less the Fed target over a long time frame. Why on earth would you buy such a bond if you want to hold it, right? I I couldn't agree more. Like negative real yielding bonds, why are you putting them in your pension fund? You're basically saying I want a guaranteed loss, right? That's yeah. what I want, right? Maybe and, they and know I something you don't know, right? Maybe they're ahead of us. That's what I sometimes feel. But there's something going on there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's more related just to the the mandates of some of these funds where they just have to hold X amount of bonds, right? They they have to hold some paper that doesn't look like equities because of the riskiness of equities and the volatility of equities. So they've got nothing else to own, right? Other than these these ridiculous negative real yielding bonds. But and then the truth is the price appreciation of those bonds hasn't been that bad until maybe recently as yields have backed up. So it's like even though the the yield on it is negative, I'm getting price appreciation out of it. So as long as I don't hold it to maturity, I'm getting a total return off it, right? So maybe- Sounds like Bitcoin to me. You know, I don't want to hold it forever. I just want to want to ride it up all the way and then- Well, there you go. The definition definition of a bubble, right? Then, you you know, if people look at Bitcoin and say it's a bubble, that they should look at what bonds have done for the last 50 years, right? 40 years. I mean, that's clearly clearly a bubble too, right? So- so one thing I wanted to, to, to pick your brain on is they call it the gamma melt-up. So something that happened last year, and we'll, we know a little bit about that story, what SoftBank did. We don't know all the insights, but there's, there's a rumor that they had the trader with lots of experience and options from Deutsche. And the idea was that SoftBank sat on this portfolio with very strongly depreciating assets. All of these were underwater. They're real investments, right? And they put a billion each usually into those investments. So they they raised 100 billion and two funds are 200 billion and they usually put a billion or more in. And the trouble was the valuations were falling because the real tech market was was dropping, especially because everything was dropping, right? In in March and April last year. And the strategy they came up with was why don't we try to manipulate the global market for tech stocks? And they weren't really focused on GameStop and the meme stocks, but they were focused on why don't we push up the valuations in the public markets of the main trading stocks, and that includes Amazon, includes Apple, but mostly the mid-tier, I'd say, not necessarily the fangs, because they, of course, were on a strong high valuation already. And I'm curious if that's even possible. So the, 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 the conspiracy theory goes like this. They put a few billion, maybe five to 10 billion, into call options. And what these call options did, of course, they wanted to drive up and did lots of leverage in it. They wanted to drive up the valuations, but it created this, this effect that 
um, prices for these options went higher than the options or the, the equities went higher. The options dealers had to buy because they had to hedge. They had to buy more. Then it went higher and higher. So what we saw this massive appreciation of tech stocks that kind of hit a lot of us by surprise. Maybe you, you foresaw them. But it seemed a bit like market manipulation from SoftBank, conspiracy theory. What do you think that's even possible? If I give you 10 billion, can you create a gamma meltdown? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's very dependent on the stocks that you choose and how deep those stocks are, right? So literally how much volume do I need to buy in a stock to have market impact, right? So that, you know, it's hard to move a stock like Apple or Amazon, right? They are very, very deep. I don't know exactly the numbers, but you need to buy a lot of stock to move those names, right? A GameStop is not hard to move, right? If you've got a decent amount of capital behind you, creating gamma squeeze in GameStop and AMC, like which happened last week, even right, that that's not that difficult, I don't think. But um, Tesla, Tesla, like twelve months ago, and it, now it's a huge number. But twelve months ago, it wasn't a huge company. Well, not by the standards of ESP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know, I don't think you can really call it market manipulation because the guy who's buying those calls is putting his money where his mouth is, right? He's, it's not like it's some official body that's like going in there and spooking the market and telling them that they have to buy and, and forcing other people to act, right? They are asking a bank or a dealer for a price and they are saying, mine, I'll buy that for you at that premium, right? And that dealer then has to go and recycle that risk. And if that dealer can't find other offsetting proxies for that risk, whether in the NASDAQ options, because that's the index that that stock resides in, or other tech names that are highly correlated to that stock, and they have to just go straight back into that market and buy the stock, and they realize that they're having to force the stock up by 10% in a day because they've sold too many options, that's not market manipulation. That's just really bad pricing on the part of the dealer that hasn't priced the liquidity of the stock properly, right? In the in the optionality that they just sold, right? So. Really, it's about how efficient the, the option market prices things and realizes the impact that it's going to have for the volumes that it's offering clients. Now, there's definitely a tendency over the last sort of 10 years for banks to offer the wrong price liquidity to good clients. So that's one of the reasons why I left banking, right? So a lot of my day job was making prices to clients in ridiculous size and volume at prices that made no economic sense to me because and that was the only way I was going to maintain market share and win those trades from those clients right so maybe there's some of that going on where dealers are just forced to give softbank an amazing price knowing that they're just going to have to go into the market and lift the stock and we're going to lose money on it but they don't care because they they need to keep their clients happy basically right so then so you see what I mean whereas if everyone was pricing it efficiently and saying right this guy wants to buy a billion dollars worth of premium in call options. What is the realistic market impact it's going to have? And I'm going to show him the right price for that option. Then maybe it wouldn't have as much market impact and you'll be able to recycle that risk over time and you'd be able to go softly, softly with it. But I think maybe there's an element to the dealers who offer that liquidity, kind of got a gun to their head, forced to offer the wrong price liquidity. And then they go... And and they make they have the market impact that we all get to see basically, right? So Yeah, that's good. That's called the Goldman Sachs trade, right? So if you have you're large enough, the Goldman Sachs wants to trade with you, you you're definitely having an edge in the market. 
but I also feel it's a bit like a, it's a common VC strategy. So say you you Sequoia, right? So what you would do, you have a few companies in your portfolio. They all are worth 100 million in valuation, or say 200 million, like a random number, and they raise their reason around on it. And you know that the threshold for a unicorn is a billion-dollar valuation. So you do the next round. You only put in whatever, 50 million. Don't put in a lot of money. But you do this not on 500 million, which the startup would accept easily, or 600 million or 700. No, no. You say that the valuation is going to be a billion, right? You only, you're still only putting 50 million in. But you don't really care, right? So you're not negotiating hard for the best price because you know that if you put it in a 1 billion f bracket, you can move the market. Someone else will come in and say, oh, I'm going to buy this for 2 billion. And then you just double your money, which wouldn't happen if you do the same thing with the $200 million, $300 million valuation. So what I'm sure. trying to say is there is, they, obviously because something is so big, they, they, they leverage their position in a way, obviously behind the scenes, maybe more than in public markets. But what they did, they kind of moved the whole portfolio because we think, okay, well, they had 10 billion or whatever they put in, 5 billion at risk. And it's true, right? These things could have suck. Um, but it's a hedge against their portfolio. Even if it wouldn't have done anything, it would maybe have stabilized at least the, 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 the bloodletting and the rest of their portfolio, which is 200 billion. So I think it's very well played. It's kind of like a PR stunt. Yeah. Their 5 billion. From, their potent yeah, from their point of view, if it's a hedge to the rest of their portfolio, then then yeah it, it could make sense for them and like say by by putting that size up you know you're kind of um cornering the market almost right you're exactly. you're yeah. creating a size that the market's not really comfortable digesting so it's probably going to move that trade in your favor um so maybe maybe there's some truth there right but, but like i say i don't think i don't think that's i still wouldn't call that market manipulation because the market should be efficient enough to price that accordingly, right? If your size is so big that it corners the entire market, the market should charge you for that, right? And the market should find the level where it's statistically the right price to sell that amount of risk to you, right? Do you see what I mean? Right, but you know, the efficient market theory has been debunked so many times. You know, oh yeah, I'm not saying, thing. yeah, 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 agree. I don't believe, so, I'm not um, a believer in that. Just, yeah, we, we can just speculate how they pulled it off. I'm, I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to wish anything bad on SoftBank. What I'm trying to say is <laughs> they, they, they facilitated a really big strategy and it worked beautifully well. What I'm trying to find out is it even possible? And it's. I have a gut feeling it is, but I've never ran the numbers because I really don't know enough about it. That's yeah, what I'm, like I, said, I'm I, I think about. it is possible, but I think it's more possible in smaller cap names, right? I just sure. think the big, deep, liquid names. It's much, much harder, right? Um, whereas for the, and we're seeing it, right? We're seeing it live and up close, like last week with AMC, there was a load of, load sure. of weekly call options that got bought and the stock was up obscene amounts in a very short amount of time. Right. So it's still happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I just yeah, think, yeah. Those. They're just so small, you know, even if they, if they go to a billion, I don't know what their market cap is. They're really, really small. So in the options volume is really small. It's very easy to move those around. Exactly. You don't exactly. need you literally just a thousand people on Reddit and you're good to go. Exactly. Execute the trade. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about another strategy that seems to be going on that's selling or buying volatility, right? And mm -hmm. for me, it seems it's, it's extremely easy once we have one of those events like COVID when, when volatility explodes and we see in public markets 50, 60, 70, the VIX is printed really high. 
you definitely want to you want to bet on a on a on a drop in the VIX because it always happens because there's a Fed and if it doesn't happen the world is ending right if it goes to 200 I think the, the public markets end because there's no mm -hmm. price that you can really find so I would always mm -hmm. take that bet and on the other hand if it's extremely low and we saw this I think in 2017 um, there is times when volatility is extremely low and it's at 10 or below that even at single digits. And that seems to me, if you can hold it, if you can, and we talked about that earlier, short, very shortly, if you can make it work that you can express this investment over long enough time frames, say six months, 12 months, 18 months without paying too much, you always win. There's, I don't, I mean, looking back at historic data only, you always win with these strategies. Yeah, so, so I mean, Volatility is a mean reverting asset, right? That by nature of it, right? It is mean reverting. And, and you know, something I often talk about is the kind of gravity of the VIX, right? So whenever the VIX pops and goes up 30, 40, 50, whatever it is, it's like throwing a stone up in the air and you know that stone's coming back down to earth, right? It's inevitable, okay? And I guess what you're saying as well, it's also the lower it goes, it's inevitable that it's going to spike at some point. Now, I would say your confidence about it dropping back down after it's spiked is much higher than your confidence about when you buy it, having any idea on the timing of when it's going to go up, basically, right? So I would say as a kind of expected value or a proposition, I, I think selling it after a spike is going to have a higher probability of success than just buying it when it's low, okay? Now, when you sell it, you, you obviously are taking a risk, right? I mean, the reason why the vol's just gone to 40 or 50 is because the market's crazy and going, you know, very volatile. And so it could well go to 80 or 100. And that's exactly what happened in March last year. So there, there are ways to kind of cap your risk, right? There are ways to sort of limit the risk that you're going you're gonna to take, even though you're still selling vol, you can, you can cap it. So yeah. an example... The way that I sold vol in March, April 2020 uh, was I sold call spreads on the VIX, right? So the VIX was at 80. I think the front month futures were about 80 or something like that. Uh, and I was selling the 100, 110 call spread for about two vol points, right? And that doesn't sound like an amazing trade, right? Because you're selling something for two that if it maxes out, it's going to be worth 10. Right. So risk reward is that amazing? Doesn't sound it right. But the reality is for it to actually lose you 10 and actually doesn't lose you 10, it loses you eight because it's 10 minus what you took in for it, which was two. For you to lose that money, it needs to go to 110 and stay there. Right. And it's already at a place where it's probably not going to stay there. It's already at 80. Right. So the, the probability is massively skewed in your favor that the vol is just going to collapse and you're going to collect those two vol points, right? But the beauty is, is because you've capped the amount that you can lose, you're never going to actually blow up on that trade, right? And also, even if vol went to 100 or 110, at some point in the life of that trade, I'd probably still be able to cut that position and only lose maybe two or three. I wouldn't lose the full eight and, until it got to expiry, right? So really, if I, if I think about it that way, I'm selling something for two, which might lose me two or three, which I'll cut it if it does maybe, let's say because Vol might go to 200 or whatever. But the chances that it goes to zero and makes me that full two points is very, very high, right? 
So that's a smart way to kind of sell vol when vols are crazy high, basically, right? Um, you know, other people, other ways to sell vol when vols are higher, maybe buying put structures on the VIX as well, uh, maybe selling iron condors. That was another way that I did it in, 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 I think I did May expiry iron condors on the S&P. When the S&P was down at 23, 24, 2300, I was selling iron condors, which are basically call spreads and put spreads, selling both of them to collect premium. But again, knowing the max that I can lose and, and, and having, having this confidence. This is a bit like a straddle. This is a bit like a it's straddle. It's, it's, it's it. a strangle. It's not a straddle. It's a strangle, okay. but you buy a strangle behind it. So it's like sell a strangle, but buy a strangle further out. So you cap how much you can lose. Again, you always limit. When you sell volatility, it makes sense to try and find ways to limit your damage if you get it wrong, basically, right? So that that's the kind of, that's what the professionals should be doing, basically. You know, there's probably a lot of professionals who don't do that still, but that's how I like to approach it when I sell vol, basically. Well, often people sit on a lot of big investments, right? And they, they, they just selling or buying volatility is just an expression of the hedge. So they, 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 they just, they don't want to hedge the hedge, right? They just want to have the full risk. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So like call overwriting is a good example, right? When you, when you own the stock and you're happy to sell a one 10% call against it and you don't need to buy anything against that. Cause if you get called out of that stock position, you don't mind 10% above where we are. Right. So totally right. That's, that's a natural, that's a natural supply of volatility that, that you know, clients are happy to sell. Right. And then, and then on the buying vol side of things, this is where it becomes a bit more tricky because the cost of carry is, is like, you know, your enemy, basically. Right. The theta and the, and the premium bleed, that, that's your enemy. And you've got to find ways to mitigate or minimize that, I guess. Right. And people have various ways they do that. Um, and some people just write some people just say, you know, I'm going to pay that cost of carry. I'm going to write it off. And it's just something that. You know, a good example is um, Nassim Talib and uh, Mark Spitznagel, right? The guys, um, the Universa, Universa, I think is the name of the fund. And they just always buy ridiculously out of the money puts with a very small fraction of their capital so that they, they've always got the crash risk, basically, right? And, and one day that crash risk will make 50x or 100x. And that's fine. That's when they'll, they'll look like heroes when the market's down 30%, everyone else is dying, and they're, they're in a position of strength where they can buy up cheap risk assets, basically, right? So they did that. I think they made some ridiculous returns last year in, in the thousands of percents in those funds. Um, so that's not a bad way to go as well, right? Just buying- But they've lost money. money. They might lost money every single year, right? They lost yeah. five, 10% every year. Well, no, no, they, lose, they, tear up, they tear up that premium that they lose every year. So let's say they spend 3% a year that they tear up, but they're fully allocated to the market, right? So with the other with the other ninety seven percent of their portfolio, they're not like they're not messing around with a bit of bonds and a bit of equity and a bit of this and a bit of that. They're just fully long the market. So in a year when the market's up, they've participated to whatever the upside in the market is by a factor of ninety seven percent, which more than compensates them for what they've been tearing up on premium, basically. Right, so so that would be really cheap, right? So these three percent sounds like a really cheap price for that kind of insurance. It gives you an upside that the market actually goes down. Yeah, I mean it's a barbell strategy, though, right? So it's it will work in a rallying market. You're going to make money. You might slightly underperform the benchmark because you're ninety seven percent invested as opposed to a hundred. 
but who cares, right? Like that's still probably a half decent return on a, on an average up year. But then in the down years, you need a big down year, right? You need you need a 20, 30% type correction for those deep out of the money puts to ever be work, worth anything, right? If you get a 5% correction, that doesn't do you any favors because you actually take the entire 5% drawdown on your equity longs and your puts never perform, right? So, yeah. so it's a barbell strategy that works in in both extremes, but it doesn't really work in that middle ground where we're kind of drifting a little bit lower and having small corrections. But they, they don't care because they look at the market and they say, these small drawdowns just get bought, basically, right? The buy the dip mentality. If the drawdown's five or 10%, within a few months it gets bought and we're rallying again, right? So they're kind of saying, it's only worth having protection when it turns into a 20, 30% drawdown, which I can kind of sympathize with, right? But the question is, do other fund managers need you for going long? I mean, they can do this themselves, right? So when, when you have an investor, say you have an institutional investor, why would you go to a hedge fund? They can put their money into long positions anyway. Sometimes they are prohibitive in certain instruments, but generally long positions and equities, everybody can buy. But they really need you for this magic optionality that pays off very nicely in the down years, right? So why not just focus on that aspect? It seems to feel for other institutional investors the most interesting part because for some other reason they cannot invest in this more exotic material. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I've spent some time training asset managers, right? And the reason why I get that business is because one of the biggest mistakes institutional fund managers make when they use options is they, they get the approval that they need a hedging strategy because it because it improves their risk profile right but what happens is every time the market dips they never monetize any of their protection okay and then the market just rallies back again and all that ends up happening is that their hedging program is just a drag on performance it's never yeah. actually monetized that's my experience too yeah right it's yeah. never monetized and that's because no one's really trained unless you're a practitioner who's used options that for 20 years and has seen it all before and has thought about all the different ways to monetize and capture these moves in, in volatility and in, in spot, you know, you kind of don't have a game plan for monetization. All you know is that I need the disaster hedge because if we get a 50% drawdown, I don't want to lose my shirt and I want to, I don't want to lose my job, job. Right. Yes. But, but I it don't seems like these hedges make you, make you sleep better, but they don't then, actually make you money. And exactly, whenever I ran, exactly. I ran a lot of, you know, back testing and, and, automated trading strategies. I never could find a single one, and this might be the criteria I use, where I felt like the hedge made me money, even long-term, right? So and this is also Warren Buffett's philosophy. He's like, well, if you have to hedge, then something is wrong with your strategy. You've got to find yeah. something you're so convinced and you can sleep with, sleep through the night, despite not having a hedge, or just don't do it, just put it in cash or put it into something under your mattress. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that, just because, um... You know, and, and this is part of the course that I give, right? It's like at the start of it, when we're talking about hedging portfolios, it's like, why am I hedging? Why don't I just liquidate my exposure, right? What is the, yeah. what's the point in holding a position and having a hedge against it? And, and there are reasons, right? Like you may well think that there's a load more upside in the asset and you want to have that upside participation, but there's something on the horizon that is making you nervous and there's a tail risk that you want to hedge and you don't mind giving up some performance to just be covered for that tail risk, right? So that is that is a valid argument. I, and so I don't think the what that I don't think that thing about just but it's don't short have term, a position. Right? 
so it's very short term when you think of it, say we, we just went through a pandemic, but markets are basically back from where we started, more or less, depends kind of on the market, but more or less. So it's a time horizon thing. The hedge works out for say six months, 12 months, whatever that, that, that moment in time is. But then after that, you're basically back to normal more sooner or later. I mean, you know, <laughs> the markets go anywhere. But that seems to be from, from the last 30 years, our experience. This might be skewed, right? It might be the next 30 years might be completely different. But yeah, but the problem is like people are measured by drawdowns and sharp ratios, right? So yeah, yeah if, you can, if you can close your eyes for a year and say, don't worry, the market's going to recover because the Fed's got my back and it's my own capital and I've got no one banging down my door saying, what the hell are you doing with my money? Yeah, you're right. It's, you don't need a hedge, right, really. But, but given that you're competing for capital against a bunch of other funds and, and the thing that people measure you on is your drawdowns, your sharp ratios and, and all these things, that's why you need that structural hedge in your book to help prevent those drawdowns when they come to show, look, I'm outperforming. I lost less than the benchmark did in that drawdown, which is why you want to give me your money rather than passive, rather than just passively invest in the spider ETF, right? So... So I think that's the reason why you want it. Um, but you just need to have protocols in place to understand how to monetize that, right? So, which, you know, it's not like there's a magic formula where, and this is, again, you know, you just need to teach people what are the go-to ways to monetize. And then they've got to use their own kind of discretion and skills to to pick those ways, right? So really, a really easy example, right, is let's say you do a risk reversal. So let's say you've got exposure to the market, but you don't mind giving up some of that exposure up 10% and you're going to sell a 10% out of the money call option, right? Get that premium and buy whatever put you can with that premium, basically. Okay. So that allows you to have some crash protection. Yeah. And you receive a little bit of premium from those calls. Okay. Now let's say the market dumps, right? Let's say you do that risk reversal and the market dumps. Okay. That call option that you sold for 2% or whatever the hell the premium on that call option was, right? That call option is now worth nothing, most likely, okay? But you're still short that call option, right? So a really easy way for you to monetize some of the hedge that you just did is to buy back that call option for next to nothing, yeah? So all you've ended up doing is selling that call and buying it back for, and you've captured that money. That money is locked in. Okay, so that's your one way of monetizing your hedge. So then if the market was to recover over the next month, you've got ammunition to resell a new call option, right? And, you, and you've, you've managed to trade around that position. And trading around that position is what is going to help you over the long term fund some of that bleed that you have systematically in your portfolio that you've that you can't at the moment do anything about and is annoying you and making you think twice about doing hedging basically, right? And then on the put side, your, your options would be things like rolling those puts down to lower strikes, maybe rolling them to future maturities. If the curve, if the volatility curve has moved in an extreme manner, all sorts of other options, but you get my point, right? Like so you don't have to just take the position off and now not have a hedge on your book anymore. You just need to know what are the kind of smart ways that I can monetize this protection and kind of effectively stop myself just bleeding money all the time when the market just mean reverts back after these shallow dips. When that mean reversion happens, I've managed to capture some of it.
right? That, that's that's the general sort of idea. That's what I try to teach in my options for asset management course. Yeah. Well, you got to know the market timing, which is obviously um, quite an art. I just feel the holy grail in all of this is, and I, I hope we're going to get there, is the hedges also make money, right? We, we put in, in hedge in hedge in to to protect something, but it also should consistently, well, consistently, obviously, it's a question of definition, but it should make money over the long term. That would be ideal. Right? That's the holy grail. Yeah, I mean, that is the holy grail. I, I would say a start, a better starting point is to say, if I can manage to just have a hedge that doesn't really cost me much money, then I'm happy, right? Yeah, for you sure. to make money off your position and make money off your hedge, you're kind of asking for a lot, I would say, right? It's yeah. not impossible, but that really is like pretty But I feel like that superior. would be easy to sell to structural investors and to a lot of investors if you can pull it off, right? Obviously, it's, maybe it's impossible. It can never be done. But if you can get close to that, the ideal scenario, because I yeah. feel like the hedge fund industry is definitely consolidating, right? So what's, it was had a big boom in the late 90s, 2000s, and then it's consolidating because it seems there isn't enough innovation coming out of it. Like pretty much anyone can do what a hedge fund can do with a Robin Hood app. And you're like, yeah. okay, it's... It is on a slightly lower price level, certainly, and there's structural benefits to it. But if it's not insider trading, what is actually a hedge fund good for? <laughs> right. So well, what's left? Yeah. What's left? Well, what what do they do? With these guys that, that nobody else can do, obviously, and they have to disclose a lot of their strategy. I mean, not in detail, but there is a certain level they have to disclose. So you feel like, no, I can do this myself. And I think this is what structural investors or a lot of these large investors, pension funds have been doing. They say, oh, well, we, we don't put a lot of money in hedge funds. There is a lot of demand for this, it seems, compared to the size of the hedge fund industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree that these more sophisticated strategies are becoming much more accessible and much easier to implement for, for everyday investors, whether it's, whether it's uh, real money funds or whether it's even retail guys. 100% agree. I mean, the, the thing that the hedge fund guys bring to the table is they've got the experience. Usually they've got decades of experience, probably maybe some of them from the sell side have moved over to the buy side. Maybe some of them have been there for a long time. So, and if they've managed to stay on the buy side for a long amount of time, it means their track records are pretty good. And so they're, they're doing something right, basically, right? They've kind of mastered their art as it were, but you know, you're right. What a lot of them do is probably quite replicatable um with some basic education i would say yeah yeah it seems like i don't know who, who coined that but if you have a paradigm shift you want 20 year olds trading your money and if you just have an extension of the current current um the current trading scenario you want someone who's in his 50s or 40s right and yeah. maybe we, maybe that's what we see with robin hood all these 20 year olds making money or maybe not i don't know yeah it seems like i mean he's taking off numbers back back to your point what you made about bonds earlier right i mean have we gone into this new paradigm where rather than owning a bond, I should just own like some low, some low earnings, high duration tech stocks instead? Because in the scenario where bonds do well, those stocks are going to do much better. Right. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So like the ARK, the ARK innovation ETF is kind of the poster child for duration right now. Why am I going to hold actual duration in treasuries or European even worse, like even lower yielding bonds? long duration assets when i can own the arc etf which is also a long duration asset but is going to have staggering upside because it captures all the growth potential right of all these innovations that are happening in the world right so maybe that's the paradigm shift where the young guys are coming in and they get excited about those growth opportunities and those ideas but it's the same conditions that will make both those investments profitable 
but the 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 high growth stocks are going to make a lot more money than than the bonds are right but Imran, i'm not sure if i really understand that that correlation because i know it's there but i don't understand to be honest why because say most tech companies they have plenty of, of money like money for them is not not a problem there's often the, the like for google for the longest time it was a problem to spend all that money in something that would earn a future return i think it's still the case of cash flows enormous so they they have bonds and they do raise money in financial markets but actually once they have a certain size they really don't have to they're almost like a government right so they, they really all talk in, in in that sense why are they so addicted and related to low interest rates uh, it's not the mega caps it's not the mega okay. caps it's it's the low it's the it's the guys um it's the guys like palantir and um you know you look just look through the arc innovation etf right it's the guys that okay. don't have any earnings and therefore yeah. don't really have any cash flow okay? okay they've got no free cash flow but in 10 years 20 years they're expected to have loads of earnings right yeah. and those future earning streams are what are being discounted at incredibly low yields which Makes are creating yeah. creating value to those stocks basically that's all it is okay yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. so but it also assumes that venture capital which usually goes along with public markets or so public markets ipos valuations are being transported into seed funds right away right that's always a problem so you say you you have an ipo it takes about three to four years for most companies or more and you say but in that moment that someone goes IPO, these valuations are being applied to seed funds retroactively, but it's you're projecting the next three years are going to be just like the market valuations right now, which is never true, right? So two years, these, these, these is a very short time frames typically. It's like a year or two and then they drop and then it goes, it's like the cycle. So I always feel like Palantir, they're more related to what is the actual IPO valuation, which yes, you can say it's discounted cash flow, but I mean, it's basically just creative thinking what the next IPO price is for Palantir, right? Well, well, Airbnb, that is 100 billion, but the prior financing run was, what, 5 billion? That, that's yeah. a massive difference. It, it cannot be, I mean, you can always come up with a cash flow scenario, but those are really random. That's right. The randomness of those things are really massive. Yeah, and, and there's cycles, right? I mean, clearly the SPAC, the SPAC bubble that kind of seemed to pop early this year, I mean, we saw it, right? So that there will be kind of manias and cycles of manias in these type of things. And we sure. see it, right? So the savvy investors who are getting into this space need to be aware of where they think they are in this sort of cycle mania and not, not try and pile into these names at the top of a mania, right? But like kind of allocating into some of these names that you've done a bit of due diligence on that you think have got the kind of business model and some edge some competitive edge that means they will survive and they will be in that space in 10, 20 years, um, then I think it can make sense when, when, that, when that space looks like it's having an unwind of some of that speculative prof. Because there's going to be a lot of people who just get into it without doing any homework, right? Yeah. So I would say you do your homework, you find out which names you like and why you like them, and then you wait for unwinds of the speculative prof in them to enter your positions and you hold those positions for long you have a five to ten year maybe longer horizon on those positions but you're using the unwind and the pain of those unwinds to get into those positions basically right and you had some opportunity recently when arc was doing particularly badly went sub 100 and you, you were able to dip your toes into some of those names um and maybe you don't do your full size you know leave yourself some powder 
dry powder to do more if there's more unwinding to be done. But that's kind of how I would approach accumulating some of those names that you believe in, basically, for the for the long term growth story. Yeah, I feel it's very hard to, you know, if you if you have a value perspective to find anything that is of good value, because by the time it is very low value in one of those super cra crazy crises where I think the world is going to end, like the financial crisis could have brought down the financial system, right? It didn't, but it could. Mm. The pandemic could have made life, you know, if it was as bad as we all thought, could have ended financial trading and any kind of trading for a long, long time. It didn't turn out to be that bad. Usually it doesn't, mm. but... Um, so for value investors, is almost never a way to get into these markets. And what I'm trying to say with this is, in value investing, I'd say is it the rational person who buys on a PE ratio that's 12 or whatever. You know, that there's more to this. But so let's say this is our filter. Um, and the return of capital is good, and the return on equity is good, and whatever. So these these numbers seem to be extremely long-term positive. You can't use them anymore because stuff never gets that low unless you know big crisis is coming around. But what I'm trying to say is for all the other investments, you can just bet basically someone buying more of this for higher valuation in 10 years from now because there's more free money going around or, or more money being printed. I think this has been the investment strategy for the last 30 years that seems to work. Anything else is, if you go from a really macro view, it's just, that's not really work anymore because it's too unpredictable. I, I, I totally agree that value investing has become impossible in, in the negative yielding world basically right because yeah. you know like they, they, there used to be a point to doing to vad to, to kind of analyzing the valuation of a company because there was some mean reversion there right it was like if value if your p is above 50 you want to sell it if your p is sub 10 you want to buy it and there's a mean reversion around pe's right in in yeah. terms of in 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 uh companies that are within the same industry or whatever but now pe's don't matter Right. Amazon's never had a PE. I don't know what it is now, but for most of its life, Amazon's never had a PE probably below 100. Right. But yeah. it's been one of the best investments you could, ever could have had. Right. So. So, you know, and, and it, it goes down to this kind of exponential theory that um, Real Vision have been talking about a lot recently. Right. So, you know, these long term investments are more not about valuation. They're about picking what are the exponential trends, right? What are the trends that are going to become the networks of the future, right? What are the things that are just going to span across the entire planet? And every single person with an iPhone is going to be using that application or that product, basically, right? And, and whatever, the PE, whatever the PE is of those things is actually completely irrelevant, right? Because PE only matters and valuation only matters if if the money that we use to buy it has got any value, yeah? yeah? But when you can pull however many trillion out of thin air to bail out an economy that just shut down for a year, right? How can you really attach value to anything, basically, right? I think it's quite difficult, I would say. And that's kind of what I'm coming to terms with, right? Yeah, but that's, isn't that, isn't that what investment is about? Well, don't you, you know, isn't investment bound to an idea of value being represented in numbers, in, in money, right, in dollars or whatever currency mm. you use? I think this is the core of investment. If, if, and I agree with you, if we follow down that road, then what is investment, what's left of it, right, besides a mania building? That's kind of, kind of the time yeah, yeah, yeah. currently, yeah, yeah. right? So we go into these crazy manias, which are rational at some point, they are. But they, they pop and then they drop and then the next meme starts. It seems to be a continuation of this is the future. 
Yeah, I agree, right? But but that's we've got a mania in central bank balance sheets, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. You, maybe you, I mean, yeah, you look maybe. at maybe. I mean, you look at the rate of growth. Yeah. Look at the rate of growth of central bank balance sheets, right? I mean, it's yeah. para parabolic. So, so that's the problem. Like, so it shouldn't be a major surprise that asset prices are exhibiting similar characteristics, right? Yeah. Now, I'm not. I'm not saying you should go and jump on every mania that's out there, right? But what I'm saying is you should you should you should be aware that these manias can persist for much much longer than you think is rational. But the beauty is, is once you know how to use optionality to participate in these manias, then you can contain your risk, right? You can contain your downside, and and that's kind of how I got into Bitcoin, basically, right? Because I wasn't really a massive believer in Bitcoin. I didn't think it's going to become the new central bank. I don't think it's going to become the new reserve currency. But last summer, I came to terms with the idea that in a world where fiat currency gets printed for fun, yeah, and just created it out of thin air, and we, we as entrepreneurs, I'm sure you notice, you have to work pretty damn hard to make a hundred thousand dollars, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they can print trillions at the drop of a hat. So, like, when when you see that happening, you start to lose faith and lose trust in your institutions and your governments, basically, right? And and whether Bitcoin is, whether it's true or not, Bitcoin is selling itself as a way of getting away from that system and, and buying into a system that is peer-to-peer, -peer, that is not controlled by a central uh, planner, that is, you know, controlled by the people, basically, right? But all around the world has no, you know, has no jurisdiction, no central jurisdiction. And, and you know, it's something, it's like building a trust, it's building something that we think we can trust and we can believe in right now whether it's going to happen or not, who knows which is why you would never put 20 percent of your portfolio into it right as a starting point that would be that would be a bit insane wait right? i sold my house and put it on bitcoin and i know people who have and they're crazy yes. and i yes. i would never and, and i think that's mental and they might get lucky <laughs> but they might get very unlucky right yeah well but but i feel like me i put probably maybe three percent of my kind of investment assets into it last summer and that's grown quite a decent way right to maybe 30 yeah. percent and and i'm sitting there thinking wow now do i want to de-risk and take some off or do i just want to let this thing run now because i put only three percent in at the start it makes sense for, the whole reason for putting three percent in is because it had potentially 100x upside over the next decade right so there's no point now taking it off but what i can do is i can put option strategies over the top of it which mean when it go if it goes back to zero because something crazy happens like the Mike Greens of the world think might happen, right? Yeah. Let's let's. I know he's a hater of it, and I, I was, it was hilarious listening to him and him and Pomp like kind of sparring on the whole Bitcoin thing, right? But but basically, if it goes to zero, I'm not going to lose all my money that I made. I'm going to lose some of it, but I'm going to get to keep at least half of it, basically, right? And so that's what that's what I like. I like that fact that the options market's there. It allows me to do things that will help me retain some of those gains that I've made in this highly speculative asset, but also allows me to maintain further upside participation if that thing continues, right? And 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 that's how I look at it. What kind of options are available for Bitcoin? I wouldn't know what to do with Bitcoin in the first place. Is that options on an ETF that has Bitcoin as an underlying instrument? No, so that probably will come about at some point, but the ETFs aren't really very sort of, um, 
I don't think they're necessarily all over the place and that easily accessible for everyone yet. So once they become, then there'll probably be an option on ETF. But at the moment, like there's really only one go-to place for retail, which is Deribit, which is the, the exchange for crypto, the options exchange for crypto. Now, Deribit, I believe, is not available to US investors. So it's if you're outside of the US, then you can participate and you can have an account on Deribit and you can trade. Um, the CME did list options on Bitcoin about a year or two ago, but they um, because it's the CME, I think there's some size issues there. So you need to be very large institutional size to be able to participate in that. So I think for the retail, it's very much Deribit is the place to be. That's where I trade my stuff, Deribit. Um, I like that name. I like that name. Yeah. For, for yeah. Well, one thing I was immediately thinking of, I don't actually know if this is even a strategy, but they, you get a ton of leverage. And so you can go a 5x long and 2x short at the same time. I don't even know if that makes any sense. But this is the only thing I think you can play around on the current Bitcoin exchanges, right? You can, you can, you can change the leverage you want. Uh, but I don't, I don't know of any, any, any is that Is that leveraged, is that kind of leveraged long or leveraged short exposure you're talking about, yeah? Yes, yes, that's kind of the only thing you can play with. Yeah, but the problem with that is that's like, and is that, a, I think those are like daily rebalanced structures, right? I hate those structures, they're, 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 they're yeah. not nice. Because yeah, they immediately sell your stuff if you if you, the margin calls come in quickly. Yeah, yeah the, the, I would stay I would stay away from those type of products personally. Um, because what they don't like those products is the chop, right? When there's a choppy yeah. price action, you you get buried in those products basically, right? Those products will only work if you get a trend that just goes in the same direction every single day for a week or two weeks and you happen to be the right side of it, then yes, you'll make a load of money, right? But if there's choppiness, which there always is inevitably with things like Bitcoin, that choppiness is kind of eating up your performance and is actually costing you money. So I would stay away from those, um, but I would learn how do I get that leverage and how do I get that exposure via optionality? Are there any smart strategies that I can do like call spreads or call ratio type structures that, that give me that participation, right? That's kind of how I like to play on, on, the, on the upside. But in general, do you believe in this? And we talked about, you sound like a believer. I find that weird that we have to use religious terms for, for monetary instruments. Yeah, but <laughs> would, do you feel like it is a useful store of value? I, I can't wrap my mind around this. So I get the whole libertarian streak, but the store of value, and it's, it's just a broken currency for the internet. It just doesn't work. It should be abandoned. Everybody should know about that. And it also is a shitty store of value from my point of view. But obviously yeah, so the world disagrees. Where do you stand? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think as a store of value, generally, something that can drop 50% over the weekend, for me, calling it, calling it a store of value is, is insanity, right? So I don't call it a store of value, okay? I, I call it, I call it a, a kind of a fiat currency debasement hedge, a long-term fiat currency debasement hedge that doesn't cost me any carry, right um and is a call option on the adoption of this thing basically right yeah. because and that's what got me excited about it right because i was like i i can effectively long a call option here that's something that could go 10 20 even 100x right that's what call options can do okay but most call options cost cost me time decay most options i have to put premium down and and that premium is decaying through time it felt like this was a call option 
which was actually making accruing value through time as more people learn about it and as the network kind of spread and, and the adoption cycle grew basically right and you don't often get to own optionality that doesn't decay on you basically right so for me that's what was attractive about it not that it's a store of value because store of value needs to have some stability stability in my mind but it's like if you are losing trust in fiat money which is not a difficult thing to get your head around right what the hell is fiat money when they can pull 20 trillion out of nowhere then it's like yeah maybe it makes sense to have something in this thing because this is an alternative right this is doing something different right now that doesn't mean that i think it is necessarily the solution but who am i to know whether it's the solution all i know is that it offers me an alternative it has some slightly different characteristics to being in the normal monetary system that is governed by central banks right and it's got this it's got this cool sort of adoption kicker where the more people who understand it and see it and throw a bit of money into it It, it, that that is going to help you basically right so that's what yeah. it is like, i i don't see it i'm not part of the religion by any stretch right but i'm i'm just open minded to it basically right and i don't feel like i have to be a lover or a hater of it i think i can be relatively agnostic and i think i can benefit it from it going up and maybe even going back down at some point i might skew my positioning to be short this thing right so yeah. right now using optionality of course i've never been naked short it but i'm happy to go go both ways on that if i think there's a good reason to right so yeah i like how you put it that's like basically a free option do that's a bit true with any volatile stock right so if you find any instrument that you go long that's relatively volatile it gives you a free call option right on whatever positive story there is whatever like a startup right yeah, so um I yeah there might be that i found that really interesting that the positive convexity for the for the startup founder is is such a beautiful thing because it always is a huge call option even do you just own the stock you don't need to buy any call options right because you you know this yeah. thing could be a billion dollars tomorrow or it most likely will never be more than anything yeah i mean that's totally right that's the great thing about equity i mean i guess with companies though you got you got to know if they're burning money or not though right like some of these startups might just be burning money that they will run out of time i'd say that's one benefit that bitcoin has Those are the ones you want, the ones that go up all the time. More, more higher burn rate is usually an indicator of growth, and growth right. is what people want. Yeah, you don't yeah, want to have right. any money. That's a bad idea. You know, Uber had so much money on their balance sheet, they tried to get rid of it. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? That tells you a lot yeah. about the world that we live in right now. But yeah, it's, it's a funny story. But if there's no growth anymore, and people go into 0.5% long-term bonds, something strange is going on. So maybe one mm. day we know what's going on. 10 years from now, we're like, look back and say, oh, man. That's so easy. You know, as a wise man once said, I think our goal isn't to predict, it's just to be less wrong than everyone else, right? We know we're going to be wrong on a lot of stuff. We're trying to be less wrong, you know? I like that. I like that. I got to think about that. But that's, I really like that. Emran, with that message, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for doing Pleasure. that. Very insightful. I learned so much. No, it was really nice to chat. Thanks for having me on. Great. Absolutely. Same here. Until next time. Take care. Everyone, talk soon. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye.